You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. This is our next to last sermon in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've been looking at this verse by verse, studying what he wrote. We are now in the midst of chapter 6. And let me just begin this way. This is God's Word. This is our textbook, our life book, our source book. It is for us as individuals. It is for us as a church. But to be honest, not everybody likes this book. There are those who are critics, opponents, who will see in this and its central message as something that's archaic, outdated, offensive. What happens is they'll find a passage that's controversial, pick on that, take it out of context, and say, look, I told you. And so it gives them a reason to criticize, disregard, dismiss God's word. One of those themes that is often chosen as one to be criticized and opposed are those scripture passages that have to do with slavery. Here's where we are today. We're in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That means we're in God's word and the subject of slavery comes up. And the question is, what does God have to say about the institution of slavery that existed a long time ago and still in some parts of the world today still exists? Well, we've got options. We can ignore God's word, just set it aside. We can edit God's word, which means there are parts in this that we're just going to say, look, those don't have any bearing on us. We can apologize for God's word. Or we can read God's word, study it, and let it have its hearing. And so what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time this morning considering exactly what Scripture says and doesn't say along this topic. By way of preface, let me also make this concession. Anytime we come to this theme in the Bible, especially, I think we immediately become uncomfortable Because we're seeing these passages through the lens of American history. We can't help but think of our national experience. And so one of the things that we notice is that this is a shameful, painful part of our past. But know this. The Bible was written long before the U.S. had history. The the idea of slavery dates back to Old Testament times and is mentioned in the New Testament as well. Let me hit on American history first. And and what we're going to do is look at a passage from Paul from 1 Timothy. So this is the same guy who writes Ephesians. And by the way, about two years ago, we were looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And when it comes to this subject, What he says to the Colossians and what he says to the Ephesians is almost identical. So this same passage that Paul wrote to Timothy comes back into play for us today. Here's what he said to Timothy. We also know that the law, that is God's word, God's truth, God's decrees, God's demands, 
is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. So these are those who don't want to pay attention to God's word, who deliberately, willfully just say, look, I'm not going to honor it. Well, who are those people that Paul puts into this category? For those who kill their fathers or mothers. <laughs> Looking at my kids, I would say that's a big one to put in there. For murderers. For the sexually immoral. For those practicing homosexuality. For slave traders. We're going to come back to that phrase. And liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So from this list of vices in verses 9 and 10, Paul brings them to get, lumps them in this category of those that are contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Now, when he uses that phrase, sound doctrine, the word sound literally means healthy. That is, when you read the Bible and you understand the Bible, you get healthy. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually. Then you become a life-giving person with the life of God in you, goes through you to others so that you can love others and live in harmony with them. And look at one of those phrases in that list. Paul says one of the major sins is slave trading. That's pretty clear. Slave trading is when somebody is free and they are taken captive and made the property of another. Where they are considered part of the estate where they can be bought and sold and traded. That's slave trading and that's exactly what happened in the history of our country. So let me say this as clearly as I can. That is immoral, ungodly, unjust, evil, inexcusable. This is very different from the context of the Old Testament and the Roman practices that Paul was writing under. With American slavery, it's almost entirely racial, which is evil. You can't arrive at any other conclusion through reading the Bible because the Bible says, here are the categories in the Bible. There is God, there are people all made in his image, and there are animals that we rule over. Now contrast that with evolutionary thinking. Evolutionary thinking says that there are animals and highly evolved animals that we call humans. So no God in the picture, animals, highly evolved animals. And sometimes there is in this continuum between animals and humans, some people who are less evolved and therefore less fully human. Evolutionary thinking is what leads to bigotry and discrimination, that certain people are less fit, less evolved, less human, and therefore have less rights and are less regarded. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, it's the teaching of the Bible that creates equality and increases our capacity to love one another and to live in harmony and unity with others who are in different people groups. It's God's word that sets us free to truly find value and worth in another. This is where kingdom thinking 
turns our culture upside down. You know, the end of the Bible, the end of times, there will be a day where all God's people from every tribe and language and nation will stand before Jesus and we're worshiping the king. And there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, that was ancient times, primitive people. We are so beyond treating people that way. I wish that were true. Let me give you two examples. Today's cultural equivalent to taking people captive is human trafficking. This is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And today's equivalent to no legal standing under the law for certain people is what happens to the unborn. They are treated as property that can be discarded and even their lives taken. So you and I have no moral high ground. We just have a different set of people that we choose not to extend rights to. They had a problem. We have a problem because the heart, the human heart is sinful and deceptive and wicked. So what we have focused on so far is American slavery. I want to compare and contrast that to biblical understanding. Again, we're going to go to the Apostle Paul, this time in 1 Corinthians. He writes this, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. What he's saying is that if you can change your status, do that. Two verses later, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. He's speaking of what Jesus Christ has done. He paid a price for you. Don't become slaves of anyone else. Now, how did someone become a slave? For us, we're going to have to go back 2,000 years culturally. In the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world, the main way that somebody became a slave was because of indebtedness. Same is true of the Old Testament, by the way. There were other ways to become a slave, such as a prisoner of war. But most often, the primary way that you became a slave had to do with indebtedness. You were in debt. This is basically bankruptcy. Even in our day, if you declare bankruptcy, you still have to pay back at least a part of that debt. In that day, let's say that you wanted to start a business or buy a house, but you didn't have the funds. Well, what you would do is meet with somebody who had resources. It's before they had banks. So you'd meet with somebody who had resources and you'd negotiate with that person. Now, what would happen if you defaulted on the loan? Well, this is where you would have to work for them to pay off that debt. This is where the slavery came in. You would have to be their slave for six, eight, ten years. It's, it's you working to pay off your debt. Now, you may be thinking, okay, why on earth 
would the Apostle Paul even address this in his letter? I mean, how many people are we talking about that, that this even concerned? Actually, quite a large number of people. The ancient historians say that the Roman Empire had between 20 and 30% of its population at any time that was in this category of slaves. And some of them became believers and a part of the church. Now, to be sure, some were treated harshly and ruthlessly, but for the most part, this was an arrangement that they entered into. Now, here's how it also differed from American slavery. In biblical times, it was not primarily racial. In fact, all races had and were slaves. You had no legal right or little to no legal right as a slave, but it didn't necessarily mean a lifetime status. Many were emancipated by age 30, and you could obtain your own freedom. By the way, all of this is true in the Old Testament. The most prevalent way of being a slave in the Old Testament was indebtedness. And you would serve that, in debt, that indebtedness for a period of years. But there was even a provision in the Old Testament where a relative could buy back your freedom. So let's say that you went out on a limb and you, you got into this, this, this relationship with somebody who was providing funds for you, but you defaulted on it. You couldn't pay it back. So you became a slave to that person. But if one of your relatives decided, you know what? I'm going to free you. I'm going to purchase your freedom. I'm going to get you out of slavery, I'm going to pay the remaining balance. Do you know what that person was called in the Old Testament? The Redeemer. That was your Redeemer. You get the connection to Jesus? Ultimately, the one who would buy our freedom, take us out of slavery to sin, who bought us with a price, his own life. Also, there were church leaders who were slaves or former slaves. Perhaps the most famous was Onesimus, uh, who was mentioned a couple times in the New Testament. Paul writes an entire letter to Philemon regarding Onesimus. So to those who say the Bible is bigoted and outdated and shouldn't it speak against slavery, don't understand the context. And let me say this, the Bible doesn't condone this. It's just telling people how to live under this. For instance, let's say today that we knew of Christians in China or North Korea or Iran who were being persecuted, which is absolutely true. But we wanted to write them to encourage them under those conditions, how to be faithful to God in an unjust political climate. That doesn't mean we're endorsing what they're going through. It just means that today that's their reality. Tomorrow that's going to be their reality. And we want them to love and serve God faithfully in the midst of those conditions. So now we find ourselves at Ephesians 6. It took me a while to get there, but I had to set the stage. Again, you're welcome for the extended time. 
you didn't have anything else to do. Come on, you're here. So think with me for a moment. Is there a cultural equivalency to go from the biblical imagery of slavery to today, 2,000 years later? The closest, it's not perfect, but the closest parallel is the workforce. You've got a boss and an employee. So when the Apostle Paul is going to say in Ephesians 6, if you want to get a practical application for this for you, the master, that's management, the servant is the employee. That's today's equivalent. So here's what he has to say. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly. This is the third time that the word heart has appeared in some fashion. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Here's what he's saying. If you're a Christian, your work is part of your worship. You see, worship isn't just what happens on Sunday mornings. For many of us, we spend the most part of our week at work. Some of you, though all of you, should wonder, how can I be a witness at work? Well, a lot of that is just determined by how you carry yourself at work. Are you honest? Do you work with integrity? Are you hardworking? Do you show compassion to others around you? If they know you belong to the Lord Jesus, your work is part of your worship. Your work is part of your witness. And then the Apostle Paul gives us certain aspects of Christian work. He says, number one, it has to do with your heart. He uses the phrase sincerity of heart. Maybe you've never thought about this before. We worship a God who worked a job. Jesus is God. God became a man. And Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, worked a job as a carpenter. Yeah, not a lot of prestige in that. He wasn't sitting on a throne as a political leader. He wasn't acting as the high priest going into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He wasn't running a business and making large sums of money for the first 30 years. God is a construction worker. And he goes to work with his adoptive dad, Joseph. And I'm sure he works hard. Now, how many of you, if you were God would not work that job. If you're God, you're like, I'm not appearing in Monroe, North Carolina as a laborer. If it were me, if I were God, I'd come to town on a chariot with gold rims, with a license plate that said, that's right, I'm God. And somebody would be running alongside of me feeding me Oreos. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus shows up and he goes to work. So today when we think about work, we've got to think about Jesus. And Paul says sincerity of heart. How many of you have gone to a job that you know your heart's not in it? That you either need a heart change or a job change. You either need to get a new attitude or get a new job. 
Jesus, when he started his ministry, had some guys who worked with him and, and for him. And one of those guys did not have sincerity of heart. Who am I talking about? Judas. Judas Iscariot. What did he do? He stole from Jesus. He was the bookkeeper, the treasurer. And for the whole of Jesus' ministry, Judas is stealing from Jesus. Judas is supposed to be helping Jesus on his mission, accomplish his mission. And Judas has not having sincerity of heart. What he has is selfishness of heart. He was not looking out for the well-being of the whole. He's looking out for himself. You and I are to have sincerity of heart like Jesus, not selfishness of heart like Judas. In addition to the heart aspect, there's also a head aspect to our work. Paul talks about doing work out of reverence for the Lord. That means, think about this, as if you're serving the Lord, not people, Paul said. See, here's the thing. Every organization has a chart. But above that organization's chart is another chart, and Jesus rules over it all. Now, your organization that you work for may not see Jesus at the top of that chart, but you as a Christian, Jesus is there. He rules over it all. That means that your boss's boss is Jesus. So if you have a hard time working for your boss, think of it like this. Well, I'm not working so much for him. I'm working for my boss's boss. Now, think of it like this. Somebody else may sign my paycheck, but I work for Jesus. So I want to do a good job because I've got a great master. Now, up to this point, we've been talking about godly living for those who are under authority. Finally, in our text, Paul has commands for those who are in authority. You see, in Ephesians 5 and 6, where we've been the last few weeks, we've looked at the relationship Paul talks about between husband and wife, that partnership. Last week, it was between parent and child. Now it's about employer and employee. And what he's going to do is talk about both sides, just as he has before. Because if you only have instructions for one side, one set of the partner, what does that leave the other one to do? Well, I can have a domineering attitude over the other one and get away with whatever I want. So now he's going to talk to those who are in authority, and he says this. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let me see if I can put you in the position of master. Do any of these ring true for you? In the company, you're the owner or the CEO or the CFO or you're in legal, you're in management. You're the master. You make decisions that others have to live with. They don't get to make decisions. If you're in the military or the police department or the fire department, you're a commanding officer you're the master. If in the school you're a teacher, administrator, principal, you have authority over children. 
In the church, if you're a leader, you make decisions that impact and affect others. In sports, if you're the coach, you're the master. If you're a parent, that means you have a child or children. You're in the position of a master. And what does God have to say to those who are in authority? Well, he has two commands here. Number one, provide for those under you by treating them well. Again, in New Testament culture, slaves had no legal rights. And Paul says, you know what, masters, slaves are expected to work for you. God has expectations of how you're going to treat them. You may not have had an expectation that I'm going to treat that other person that's under me with dignity and respect and honor, but God does. So don't treat that other person as a resource to just better yourself. Treat them as an image bearer of God. Do you see how revolutionary the Bible really is? The fact that we have equal rights under the laws because of the Bible. It's about doing what's right. Not threatening. Not taking advantage of. Not manipulating your powerful position so that you always win and others always lose. And number two. Know that you both, slave and free, those under authority, those in authority, serve the same master. Here's, what's God, here's what God is trying to teach us. He wants his people, those who are in authority and those who are under authority, to act like Jesus. Because both have a master in heaven. Is Jesus our master? Yes, so we do have a master. Now, how is that master toward us? Is he loving and gracious and generous and kind? Is he fair? Absolutely. So if Jesus is your master, you can look forward to a time of going to heaven and not having any more bosses, any more politicians ruling over you. You only have Jesus to deal with. And he has nothing but right decisions made on your behalf and good for you because he is a great master. Now, you know, some people don't want to give their life to Christ. They don't want to become a Christian because they don't want Jesus to be the boss of them. Let me just say this. Jesus is a better boss of you than you are of you. Jesus is more loving towards you than you are to you. Jesus is more gracious to you than you are to you. Jesus is more forgiving of you than you are of yourself. Jesus is a great master. And when we call him Lord, we're calling him our master. And what we are to do is to represent our king in the way that we treat others as we've been treated. I'll close with this. The Bible has rights and responsibilities for all people. Here we're reading that God wants those under authority to give their best and people in authority to provide safe, life-giving environments for others to thrive. And in the irony of ironies, our master serves us. He lived the life that we could not live, the life without sin. He died the death that we should have died, the death for sin. And he gave us the gift that we cannot earn, that through his gift of life for us, 
We get rewards and an inheritance because he has served us. He got off the throne to serve you and me. And when we worship our master, we are worshiping one who is both humble and worthy of worship at the same time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you today. Lord, I pray that all of us would receive the Lord Jesus as both our servant and our master. And that we would be under authority and in authority as Jesus would have us. Lord, I I pray for the employees here. Those who work for someone else to give them wisdom. Give them hearts and minds that are seeking to do their best as if they were working for you. And I pray for the employers that are here to give them wisdom and insight how to lead, how to treat well and bring out the best in those who are under them. And we look forward to the day, Lord Jesus, when you alone are ruling and reigning in all the nations and all the languages and all the tribes and tongues and all people from all cultures throughout history are united around the resurrected Jesus who serves us and loves us forever and hence his name that we pray and make our prayer saying our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.